Ladies and gentlemen, you have made it to Brave to the Bone podcast, where we explore the dynamics of human courage in its most dynamic form, personal transformation. I am a nurse who left traditional Western medicine to explore the vast potential of healing that exists in our natural world. From psychic healers to psychedelic wellness, this is your source to your own human potential. Today we have Dr. Rick Barnett. He is a clinical psychologist and addiction specialist. He is also a graduate of the California Institute for Integral Studies, a program for psychedelic therapy and research. He is also the founder of the Psychedelic Society of Vermont, which now has over 70 health professionals with a shared interest in psychedelic research and therapy. Dr. Barnett is also in long-term recovery for addiction. His story, openness, vulnerability, and honesty is incredibly refreshing. Today we talk about the work and his practice and in the social and spiritual context of psychedelic healing in today's world. You'll love this. Enjoy. Dr. Barnett, thank you so much for coming to the show. I'm so grateful to have you here all the way from Vermont. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do? Absolutely. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I have a doctorate in clinical psychology and have been seeing patients in private practice now for the last in Vermont for the last 14 years, 15 years. And in, in all, I, I had a practice in New York City for a couple of years before moving back to Vermont. And I work uh, with all kinds of problems that people might come into psychotherapy for. And I'm also an addictions counselor. So I specialize in all types of addictions. And I founded the Psychedelic Society of Vermont last year, which is super exciting. After completing training in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy through the California Institute on Integral Studies, that was super exciting. And so, I've, yeah, I, I do a little bit of everything. I work with uh, the DUI program in the state of Vermont, run my own clinical practice, starting this Psychedelic Society of Vermont, starting to do some ketamine work and uh, a lot of addictions work. So that's that's my my day to day. There are so many ways that I want to take our discussion because you're doing so many incredible things. I guess let's start with the community in Vermont. Can you tell us a little bit about the Psychedelic Society? As far as I know, there there's always little communities of uh, psychonauts and psychedelic explorers and, and people who are interested in this space. Uh, and we don't always know about all of them, right? There's like small groups, there's bigger groups. As far as I know, there's a group of people nearby, actually Waterbury, Vermont was just mentioned. There's some folks in Waterbury that I think they do monthly meetups, either online or in person. That's just for anybody who wants to come and talk about like an integration circle kind of thing. And the Psychedelic Society of Vermont is more for health practitioners. So anybody who's in the healthcare field, as an occupational speech therapist, a massage therapist, a physician, a nurse, a physician assistant, a psychologist, a social worker, anybody who works under the umbrella of the broad healthcare system is welcome to join the Psychedelic Society of Vermont. It's not really a membership organization. It's simply a bunch of healthcare practitioners who share a strong interest or even maybe a passing interest in the psychedelic field that's uh, re-emerging here over the last decade or so and, and expanding exponentially day by day. So that those are the two communities that I'm aware of here in Vermont. 
And I think, you know, we're in northern, I'm, we're in New England, northern New England. And of course, there's psychedelic societies, maybe in New Hampshire, there's the Boston Psychedelic Research Group, there's other folks, but we, we actually have folks from Rhode Island, from Massachusetts, from New Hampshire, that join our monthly meetings. Amazing. And so I'm in California. And so I know a lot about the laws here and the laws in Oregon. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on politically in Vermont with the psychedelic movement? Yeah, very little. I I would say that there was Representative Brian Chena from Chittenden County did put together a a decriminalized nature bill. He consulted with the decrim nature folks out out of uh, the Bay Area. Carlos and um, forgot the other guy's name. He uh, he consulted with them. They put together a bill just to really start to raise awareness. And this is last year. We had a couple of meetings online just to talk about the bill. It's not a very good bill in the sense that it's really was put out there just to raise awareness and get people talking about it. Well, right? at least it's something. Mm-hmm. It's something. And then there's another bill too. There's actually, so I believe they're looking to, we know that cities or municipalities around the country are decriminalizing town by town. So Burlington, Vermont, which is the biggest town in Vermont, has a has a something on in their municipality looking to decriminalize plant medicine and psychedelics in Burlington. There's little things here and there happening. I do work with the legislature as part of my role with the Psych- Psychological Association uh, of Vermont. And I know how the legislature works here. It's very small town stuff. The the thing about what we have is a citizen legislature and we don't have ballot initiatives. So if you're going to pass a law, we can, you can't just get a bunch of citizens together, sign a petition and get a law passed. You actually have to have a bill that gets vetted by the by lawmakers at the state house. You mentioned that you're interested in ketamine and you also do a lot of work with recovery. And I feel like um, we have to talk about ketamine more because it tends to get overlooked, uh, especially in this, um, you know, in the space of this conversation, because it's a legal psychedelic. Some would argue that it's not. But are you um, currently using ketamine in your practice with uh, folks in recovery? That's a good question. With folks in recovery, not yet. I've proposed it as an option for folks who are struggling with various types of addictions, maybe they're trying to get into recovery and not, not being able to sustain it. So there's a guy actually today that I spoke to that just came back from a 28 day inpatient stay. This is a holistic center out West and came back and he's still struggling with his, with drinking, not crazy, but he's just struggling. And I did mention, you know, ketamine is an option. He's like, well, ketamine was offered out there, but I wanted to go all natural. So I didn't take them up on the offer. I was like, look, you're willing to take antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. You're willing to keep drinking alcohol periodically to deal with whatever you're dealing with. Like, why not try ketamine? I wasn't trying to convince him of it, but I was like, Mm -hmm. it is an option. And there was this great study that just came out out of uh, the University of Exeter in in England uh, through Awaken Life Sciences on ketamine and alcohol use disorder. So it's going to get approval for alcohol use disorder. And I do believe it is a good tool as an option for folks that are struggling with addiction. So I'm not specifically working yet with people in recovery from addiction or with alcohol or drug or other addictive problems. Uh, The work that I'm doing with ketamine right now is for people with um, some depression, some anxiety, some existential distress, looking to uh, sort of expand their outlook on things, get get unstuck in their mind. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's really incredible how ketamine works. Well, what I'm finding, at least as I communicate with, with communities, is that people don't really understand the long-term effect of ketamine. There's just a huge lack of education. I think the in the medical model of ketamine treatment, the way it's offered now, I feel as though people's vulnerability to developing an unhealthy relationship with ketamine is definitely overlooked or under underestimated. I, I remember I've worked in the addiction field for since 1996. I'm 49 now. So as a young person, I started off working in the addictions field. And I can remember back in the late 90s, people, not that many people, but occasionally there were people coming in with ketamine as being their drug of choice that, you know, misusing ketamine. Uh, even in the late 90s, early 2000s, you were having vet veterinary clinics being robbed of their ketamine supply for people who were looking to get ketamine. Um, and so I don't think it's a huge problem, but and, I, and I'm very aware of the recovery community because I'm part of the recovery community. I'm in long-term recovery from addiction myself. And of course, I've heard numerous stories about people struggling with their relationship to ketamine because it's been it's become unhealthy. So I think that's I think it's underestimated in the medical world. I know that in the recovery world, it's it's well known that people can get, I don't want to say addicted to, but can develop an unhealthy relationship with ketamine. So that's something I think needs to be talked about a little bit more. What are your techniques in educating your clients around um, a healthier relationship and more mindfulness with the use of ketamine? The intentional use with a, with a therapist. Self-administration is probably not a good idea without any kind of um, intentional, like a, a relationship with a therapist that you can. So if you're getting someone started on um an introduction to ketamine. What does it look like in your practice currently? Are you doing infusions or I know there's a nasal spray and there's a lozenge uh, like you mentioned, and do you set them up prophylactically for mindful usage just by regular visits and discussion with intentionality? And um, what type of symptoms you said, anxiety and depression, but it kind of seems like a catch-all for so many um uh, so much suffering of the human experience, you know, cause like all of us suffer, um, in different ways, we can chalk it up to those two catch all categories. I think it is a broad tool and to call it a catch all it's, it is, it's useful in a number of ways. So I'm a clinical psychologist. I don't have prescriptive authority, meaning that I can't prescribe ketamine. I can't administer IV infusions. I'm not allowed to do that in the state of Vermont. Now I am able to prescribe ketamine if I lived in five other states as a psychologist with my specific type of training, I would be able to do that. In Vermont, I can't. So I work with a physician who has his own primary care practice not too far away and he does the medical evaluation. Sorry, I was moving around there. He does the medical evaluation for folks uh, to make sure medically they're clear he has infusions in his office. Really, I'll work with people in two ways. One is they go through the uh, physician to get evaluated medically, make sure everything's kosher there. Then they may do an infusion or a series of infusions in his office, and they would come see me for integration. So I'd either meet them first, uh, do a couple of get to know you sessions, and then refer them to the physician for ketamine do the medical eval, they do infusions there, they come back and see me for integration, what was the experience like, 
How can we use this experience to improve your emotions? The other way I do it is if they've gotten the medical clearance from the physician, they can be prescribed ketamine lozenges called psycholytic therapy. So low dose, very low dose ketamine, not knock your socks off kind of ketamine with infusions or intramuscular injection or, or nasal spray. Really the lozenges, you can, you can regulate the dose uh, from a very low dose to a little bit higher and it's very manageable, but it's an extended session. We as psychologists, mental health professionals, we're used to working in 45 minute hours or 55 minute hours, but a ketamine session with lozenges could be three to four hours long. So what is sparking your passion right now in the field? My story is simply like the fact that psychedelics have come into the spotlight the way they have in, in so many amazing ways is, is for me like uh, coming home uh, because my story is simply that I wouldn't be a psychologist today and I wouldn't be a person in long-term recovery from addiction today if it weren't for uh, early exposure in my life to psychedelics and uh, they changed my life and they, they made me want to be a psychologist and they allowed me the open-mindedness to find a path in recovery. And I don't know if I would have stayed in, in recovery had it not been for my, um, you know, mind expanding heart opening experiences with psychedelics as a, as a kid so the reason why I'm so excited about it is because psychedelics are going, they've gone mainstream, they're going mainstream, they're being legitimized. And it's like my life story is being legitimized in a way. You know, wow. I feel, feel very, very strong. Like I saw during my training with the California Institute for Integral Studies, I saw Stan Groff's documentary, The Way of the Psychonaut. And I was, I don't even know why, but I was literally in tears at the end of that movie, just because it was so moving. I mean, LSD had a huge impact on my life. And to see this man who's done so much for the field, talk about it and, and talk about it, just talk about the history of it and, and everything in there was like, yeah, I know, I know I've been like, I've lived this life. And, and so it's very heartwarming and, and uh, feels very validating to, see how the field has evolved and, and emerged. And I'm so grateful to be where I am today, to be able to be part of um, a, an honest and healthy contribution to the field. What I think I bring to the field is so, so many different things personally and professionally that it just allows me to have a lot of nuance and I don't get caught up on like one side or the other. I understand we live in a capitalistic society. I understand the pharmaceutical industry. And while I don't agree with a lot of it, I, I understand how I understand how that works. And so I'm not going to vilify the crap out of them, but I can hold them to account. And, you know, the decrim movement and the legalization movement and the uh, psychedelic society movement and the community movement and the indigenous culture movement and all these things coming together and everybody having a voice I feel like everybody has a voice and everybody has a credible, legitimate voice that needs to be heard. And I think as soon as we start fighting with each other around like in, in Oregon, if Compass Pathways comes in and tries to stop Measure 109, that they don't think psilocybin facilitated uh, therapy should be, should be approved, 
because they're developing their pharmaceutical version of it and they're trying to protect that. I, I don't think that's super helpful. I also don't think it's super helpful when people uh, viciously in an unproductive way, just rip apart pharmaceutical industries for doing what they're doing. I, I think it's too bad in a way that there's this FDA approval process and this research process that we have to go through in order to get it, this Western medical model approved. And, you know, I'm part of that Western medical model. So I'm like, I get it. I understand why that's a pathway. Do I, do I think that's the only pathway? Am I going to, am I going to encamp myself in, in this one model? Hell no, absolutely not. I want people to have access. I want people to have affordable access and I don't care how they get it as long as it's done ethically and responsibly and health in healthy ways. And I think there's so much room under this umbrella that the, the infighting is, is really, uh, it's a waste of time. Absolutely. I'm completely in 100% agreement with you. I wish we were like a, a crowd of a thousand cheering you on, but you've really perked my interest um, in two ways. One, I really want to hear about your experience. Did you go to California to study with CIS? Did you stay in San Francisco for the year? And I want to know a little bit about that, but I also really would love you to give us the opportunity to take us back to where you started as a human being in your own human experience with addiction and how you um, recovered with psychedelics, um, whatever way you'd like to take us first. Well, the first part of your question about CIIS was a very curious process. I uh, interviewed and got in and we were supposed to start at a plane ticket, had a hotel to fly out to San Francisco on March 13th, 2020. And on March 12th, 2020 was basically D-Day for COVID. And um, I canceled my flight and I canceled my hotel and CIIS went 100% online after that weekend. Some, some of my cohort were actually there in San Francisco, but after that weekend, everything was online. So I did the entire program, $10,000 and many hundreds of hours and several weekends and workshops and everything later. Uh, I, I finished up in uh, March of 2021. So I never actually got to go out to the main campus out there. And then now they have an East Coast uh, class. So that, that was my CIS journey, which was just amazing. I mean, it was a really, I say $10,000 because I know that's a shit ton of money for most people. And it was for me, I put it on a 0% uh, credit card and I paid it off over the course of the year. So I didn't have to pay any interest on it. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing, but I'm doing fluence right now. So, but that 0% APR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was fine. And it was totally worth it too. So anybody who's thinking about getting training, you know, I, I vote for yeah, places like Fluence. I know the psych Psychedelics Today guys put out this new vital program, which is awesome. CIIS, MAPS, Naropa Institute. There's some legitimate ones out there. And even though they're expensive, I think we're still at the very early stages of this whole process. So if you, if anybody wants to get into it now and can find a way to get a scholarship or pay for it. It's really worth now I think is it's really, the time. That's right. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So fluence, I know fluence is really good. Elizabeth Nielsen, Jeff Gus is a psychiatrist that works. Yeah, Jeff Gus is amazing. 
So let's go back to you. And if you could take us back to who you were as a little boy, I kind of want to gain insight into what it was like to be you. Were you curious? Were you just like, um, what was growing up like for you? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up very lucky. You know, I'm somebody who very fortunate not to have a whole lot of trauma or drama necessarily growing up compared to a lot of people I work with and have uh, heard stories about. And I know we all have a different path, but I grew up the youngest of five kids. Uh, my my mom was my dad's uh, third wife and um, they were married for 23 years. They got divorced when I was 20. Actually, they got divorced right around the time that I was getting sober from alcohol and drugs. Yeah, I was the youngest of five kids and I was just a social kid that loved to hang out with his friends and have a good time. And, you know, I, I started somehow I started smoking cigarettes by the time I was 10 years old. Uh, and I found that fascinating, a very curious, uh, mischievous kid. Uh, and so smoking, smoking cigarettes by the age of 10, I was drinking by the time I was 11, I was smoking weed at the age of 12. And I was smoking regularly uh, what, by the time I was 13 and getting in trouble with the police for getting into mischief. And then, you know, I, I, I went away to boarding school and that opened my world up to a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, completely on my own with a bunch of friends and, you know, started using Coke and, L and, and LSD and uh, MDMA and drinking a lot more, smoking a ton of weed on a regular basis and um, somehow managed to graduate from high school with some some legal problems, but I graduated with honors and I was still getting messed up a lot of the time and went to the University of Vermont and things just went downhill from there. I could not keep my shit together because Groovy UV, University of Vermont is a is a party school. And I was I was already in training before I got there. So it was just gasoline on fire and I crashed and burned so hard um, during that process. My grade point averages dropped. I was on academic and disciplinary probation for doing all kinds of stuff on campus. And uh, I bailed out, took a med medical leave, went to Colorado. Things never got better. I uh, came back, got really sick, got pancreatitis and um, getting acute pancreatitis put me in the hospital. How old were you at this time of getting the pancreatitis? 20. Wow. Which is pretty unusual. It does happen. Uh, it's usually people in their 40s and 50s who've been drinking a long mm -hmm. time. Uh, you're a former nurse, I think, right? I, yeah, I'm still a nurse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you know, you've seen pancreatitis, you know, 20, 20 is not totally unusual, but it's less common to see a 20 year old with pancreatitis from, from drinking basically. So I was drinking a lot. It was not good, but you know, it's interesting because I said before, like LSD and psychedelics really changed my life. And I can remember the first time I took LSD was in New York city. And I felt like that was very interesting and amusing. How old were you at that time? 15. Yeah, I was 15 and I thought it was amusing and interesting. And then the feeling didn't really go away. So I thought like for my first LSD experience for a few months afterwards, I was like, oh, something's really different. Like I'm not thinking the same way. I'm seeing the world differently now. Not like what's called HPPD. Have you heard of uh, hallucinogenic perceptual, persistent perceptual disorder? Yeah. Uh -huh. um, yeah. It you wasn't like that. It wasn't that. Okay. No, 
it was just I knew something was different in my brain. I had another psychedelic experience with LSD where for three days I saw and felt how everything was connected. I literally was like, like in this trance state uh, at boarding school and everything was connected. And it was like the most strange and wonderful mystical experience I've ever had that literally everything, like I would look at the trees and look at people and the movement of, of everything and the words coming out of people's mouths and everything was just like, connected for like three days. I was like, whoa, this is so amazing. And then I had one experience with LSD where I knew I was going to die. That is, I knew that I was drinking too much and my life was completely out of control. And I was on a lot of LSD and I was really drunk. And I was like, if I keep doing this, I'm going to die. I am going to die. And that didn't stop me from partying still, but I do remember that as a as a shift in my awareness of my addiction and how serious it was because the the experience on LSD was like basically putting it in my face like if you keep doing this, you will not live. You know, for a while I was like I don't care. I don't care if I live or die. I'm partying. This is what I do. Doesn't matter what the LSD is saying. Um and eventually I got sober. And I think the reason why I got was able to stay, get and stay in recovery is I went to a traditional 12-step rehab and uh, they're called the Hazelden Foundation, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. And, you know, a lot of people will reject AA and 12-step programs, 12-step uh, orientation because of the the religiosity of it and the idea of admitting powerlessness and turning your will and your life over to God and God this and God that. And I didn't grow up with any religion. I didn't grow up anti-religious, but I just wasn't exposed to religion. I was exposed to psychedelics. And so when I came into uh, rehab and they were talking about spiritual principles I wasn't associating with like God and, you know, big mean daddy in the sky kind of thing. I was, I was just like, Oh, I know these concepts because like I've done psychedelics and like, I know how to, (laughs) I know how to surrender. I had to surrender to psychedelics all the time. I know how to like turn it over and let go and be open-minded and, and, you know, like be honest with myself because psychedelics almost like make you be honest with yourself. So it really wasn't a stretch for me to, you know, embrace, the 12 steps or, or the community around it. And so I feel fortunate in that way because I think a lot of people uh, shy away from or, or re- just categorically reject 12-step programs because of the religiosity. So I'm very fortunate I didn't have that. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that because you know there is a, such a profound mystical experience that is happening to people with psychedelics now. And at the same time, we have um, a lot of people have rejected Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous because of the religious aspect. But you know, of course, and I've mentioned this before on the podcast, Bill W's experience. You know, um, we tend to believe now that it was induced by plant medicines um, with his belladonna when he was hospitalized, and then later with with LSD. Um, so it is incredibly important to have some understanding of a mystical experience. And we're finding in all the research studies that the people who have the mystical experiences tend to do so much better. So, and it, it does have this incredible framework of this, um, necessity to let go. And, um, like you said, to be honest, to, um, trust in something greater than yourself, because we have no control. So it's funny how it's really starting to come together in this field. Yeah, there's just so many parallels. If you think of 
trust, let go, be open. You know, there is something, there's a parallel in so many ways to so many things with trust, let go, be open. There's preparation, dosing, and integration, right? So if you think about preparation as trust, you have to trust the process. You have to develop rapport with the guide, with the therapist. You have to do all the preparation and trust that you're being called to do this for your own growth and, and healing. Then you have to let go when you go into that psychedelic space to just be, just don't fight it. Just let, let it wash through you. Just have the experience, let go. And then the integration is really be open to what the experience offered you. Be open to change, be open to integrating and implementing changes in your life that were born out of this whole preparation dosing experience. So trust, let go, be open is also like same thing in 12 step programs, right? Trust that you're in the right place that you found a 12 step program for the right reasons. Trust these people. They know they've been there. Let go, let go, give yourself over to this process, right? Give, give yourself over to 12 step recovery and be open to suggestions. People are going to make suggestions to you about how to get and stay sober. Be open to those suggestions. doesn't mean you have to do whatever you're told, but just be open to the, the message that's there. So, I mean, and I can go on and on about this trilogy or this trinity of trust, let go, uh, be open. Yeah, and I think for me, because I quit drinking two years ago, and for me, um, you know, that's so beautiful what you just said, because that in itself is the spiritual process. That is engaging in the mystery. That is your spiritual awakening. And for a while, I was like, you know, I'm not having a spiritual awakening. Like, what? how am I supposed to feel spiritually in touch? But you're right. Um, those three things that you just mentioned are so profound. It is a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of engaging and having a relationship with the mystery. So in that way, when back then, when you were young, when you were seriously in your mind thinking about psychedelics, I'm sure if you had told anybody at that time and you're in stage in your recovery, they would be like, no, that's not what we're talking about. Or how did that look? Did it work just fine? Or how did it look back then when you were in your early stages of recovery? So I used to say when I went to rehab, people would always say, what's your drug of choice? People always ask each other so they could relate, like, what's your drug of choice? Was it alcohol? Was it heroin? Was it Coke? You know, what was it? And so I would always say pot, alcohol, acid, pot, alcohol, acid. That Those were my drugs of choice because I drank every day. I took acid uh, something like 400 times before the age of 20. Um, so I took it regularly. It helped me drink more, really. And uh, and I smoked weed every day. And when I got into recovery and people were talking about meditation and prayer and the 12 steps and spirituality and spiritual growth, this one guy came up to me and he said, Rick, you've done a lot of acid. You know about all this spirituality stuff. Don't you think we could just take some acid and trip and then we could just figure out all this 12 step spiritual recovery stuff? And I was like, you know, man, I tried that. I really did. My first 40 or 50 trips on LSD, I was really seeking some sort of spiritual development. But after the first 40 or 50 times, it just became another way to get fucked up. So I felt like at that time, uh, in early recovery, I was like, nope, that uh, psychedelics are not the pathway to recovery. Now, I've come full circle now, uh, not just because of the research, but really because of what you said earlier, is that I think the cornerstone in, in healing and transformation 
is some version of a spiritual awakening, a spiritual shift internally, you know, a connection with another human being, a connection with the divine, a connection with your higher self, some sort of shift in that way. And that can come from psychedelics. It happened for me, something opened me up. Now I wasn't quite ready to, to do the recovery part of it. I was just on a mission, but um, I do believe that using psychedelics to help people overcome addictions, uh, both if they're, if they're in their active addiction or early recovery, medium recovery, long-term recovery, I believe there's a definite role for psychedelics for some people, not for everybody, uh, but I do believe it's it's a very powerful tool for some people because of that mystical experience component. It's really important. Actually, I wanted to say, Tanya, that I'm uh, I'm organizing a conference here in Vermont in June of 2022 on the summer solstice. And um, wow, where it's called psychedelic science and spirituality. And I've got all these wonderful speakers coming. And I believe one of the reasons why people are excited to come to little old Vermont from wherever they're coming from is because of the spiritual vibe that I really want to bring to this conference, not your typical scientific, you know, speaker, blah, blah, blah kind of conference, but really I want to have the, the experts talk about their research and talk about their area of expertise, but I really want them to do so with an eye and an eloquence around the spiritual mystical side of these, these tools, these medicines. And so it's got a really good vibe. We're going to have like breath work and movement and dance workshops. And, and everybody who speaks like Ben Sessa, Matt Johnson, Bia Labate, we got Chuck Raison from USONA and other folks coming to Vermont. And I really want them to talk about this. You know, I want them to talk about their research, but I want to talk about the, the paradoxes and the, and the mystical nature of this stuff and the spirituality and all the, the non-dual kinds of things that, that are really so integral to this whole movement. Have you uh, met Neil Gahani from Mind Lumen? Because I his, have. Oh my God, his story is so profound. He was on the podcast and he would be great to have too because his um, um, conceptualization of Mind Lumen is totally profound. Where he came from is a place of not having any uh, emotion uh, or emotional connection to his life experience. And then it just completely transformed. So that sounds epic. I'm so excited to hear. And I hope that maybe I can collaborate with you and interview some of your, your guests that you're going to have. Do you know what city or do you guys have a site of where you're going to um, have this? Yeah. So Stowe, Vermont is my hometown and that's where my practice is. And Stowe, Vermont is famous for a couple of reasons. It's famous for the skiing because there's a ski resort here. It's also famous for the Trapp Family Lodge, the Von Trapp family, which is a family that escaped the Nazis uh, in the in World War II. And they and part of the family came to Vermont and they they built a, a business here, an Austrian lodge and business. So the Von Trapp family, the sound of music, you know, mm -hmm. with Julie Andrews. That that's located here in Stowe. So that's the venue for the psychedelic conference. Oh, amazing. That's going to be incredible. We'll have to come. I'll have to make, make my way out there. My husband's from there. I got married there and we love it. He used to work at Sugarbush. So when he was growing up. Yeah. Come on out. So, so okay. So then you move into your recovery. It, um, you pivoted away from your psychedelic usage early on because you recognized that L LSD was your drug of choice. And so how can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way to move to become full circle with that opinion of psychedelics and recovery? So 
I, I was always aware throughout my recovery that psychedelics played a pivotal role in my life. And so I always had an eye for these things. I started working in the field of uh, counseling uh, in 1996. So four years into my recovery from addiction, I started working uh, in a treatment center. And I also began in 1999, I began teaching uh, physicians uh, in doing their residencies in New York City. So teaching hospitals all around New York City would come to the treatment center that I worked at, and we would give lectures on the research on uh, drugs and alcohol and, and have people go to meetings and groups and you know integrate with the patients in the treatment center. So the physicians were taught all about addiction, treatment, and recovery. And one of the topics that I covered was basically a drug update. And I realized in, 19, uh, in 2000, 2001, we started to hear about MAPS and the research with MDMA for trauma. And, um, and I knew there was something brewing there. And I was very curious about that because uh, MDMA, Molly, ecstasy on the one hand is a, is a party drug, but if anyone's had experience with, with MDMA, it's also a very um, powerful and, and positive uh, experience. And so I kept an eye out for it and I always had a special place in my heart for psychedelics. And so I guess, yeah, what happened was in 20, 2017, 2018, when Michael Pollan's book came out, a friend of mine told me about it. I saw Michael Pollan and Matt Johnson speak at the American Psychological Association conference in uh, Chicago in 2019, heard them speak. And, um, and that's when I found out about, out about CIS. I was like, Hey, I'm an addiction specialist. I'm a clinical psychologist. This stuff is legitimate, legitimized now. I want to be trained in it um, from that side of things because I've had so much experience on the other side of things. Uh, so it just felt like a real natural fit. Wow, interesting. And so then um, when you were complete with CIS, did you can you tell us about what it felt like? I mean, you were all about it. Your passion was ignited to rediscover what you could do in the field and to learn everything you could. Th then did you come to a place to where you were just um, letting all the pieces fall into place? Or what did it look like as far as your practice and your integrating um, CIS into your life? Well, it was, goes back to the Psychedelic Society of Vermont. I knew there wasn't really a community of health professionals here in Vermont. And I really want I really want to be a voice for what I said earlier about the nuance between all these worlds. I, I don't want it to just be a Western medical model, but I also don't want um, to be uh, repeating the fringe, you know, far out fringy thing. I've been to a couple of psychedelic society of San Francisco meetings and other psychedelic society meetings. And sometimes those meetings can go kind of all over the place with people giving trip reports and, um, and that's all fine. But I was just hoping that there could be a place where, where both experiences, both the healthcare professional medical model research processing kind of thing can happen alongside um, opportunities for talking about integration and um, what we're seeing in our clinical practices. A lot of people are using psychedelics. Now they're getting access to mushrooms. They're tripping out in the woods or with their friends and they're, and they come into doctor's offices or therapist's offices and saying, what do you know about psychedelics? Cause I just had this, this profound experience on mushrooms last weekend. And I need to talk about it because I'm struggling with a couple of pieces of it. If we're not, if we're not trained as therapists, as physicians to know in a healthy way, what this is about, not this stigmatized, like drugs are bad kind of um, 
narrative that we've all been spoon fed, but really to speak knowledgeably and intuitively and in a healing way about these kinds of experiences that everybody's having and get ready for this, this revolution that's happening in terms of the whole psychiatric paradigm. Um, I think if we don't have a place where people can come and talk about this stuff in Vermont, um, then it's a missed opportunity. So that's where my enthusiasm landed me is founding the Psychedelic Society of Vermont with a couple other healthcare professionals. And we've got about 70 people who have who have signed up for our Google group and we meet monthly and it's really growing. It's a growing community. Oh, it's so amazing. I really love how you have positioned yourself and I really feel the same. And I feel like it's more than just having a medical background myself. Um, but I see the two things, the culture and Western medicine, they both have to, you know, they're both rising up and we, we can't miss the mark at some, at some point we have to meet. And so where is that going to be? And I was just inspired to say, you know, people are, are now, anybody who's listening, people are now inspired to come into a doctor's office and talk about their psychedelic experience. Like, I just want to commend our culture right now for being courageous enough to bring this to your, the steps of your doctor's office, because it's inspiring so many people to get further education and we need it. And there's a reason why we need it. it um, moving into a psychedelic space and having a meaningful experience is so much more profound for our lifetime than just having like an intense dream or one could even say seeing a ghost, you know, we don't have to integrate that experience. But when we really come to a different understanding of who we are, it is so sacred. So I'm so happy for our culture to even be wanting to start to talk about this. I think that it's really important. And I think it's both important for Health healthcare professionals to get educated and raise their awareness around this and encourage patients to go into their healthcare professionals, office therapist, physician, whatever, and talk about this. And also neither dismiss people's experiences as, you know, hokey or, or, uh, or fantastical or whatever, nor I think it's important. Well, you know, this Tanya, that the, the narrative from pharmaceutical companies right now in this space and from some of the headlines on research articles and Time magazine and, you know, all these different things, it's basically like promising a cure for PTSD, promising a cure for depression. And it's it's going to change the world and everybody's going to heal. And, and I think some of that messaging is good, but we also don't want to give the wrong impression. I, I People come into my office with things like, I want to reset. I want to reset my brain. I want a complete overhaul. I expect to have this powerful, like God-like experience so that I'm forever changed. And they go off and do have a psychedelic experience. And sometimes it's underwhelming for them, or sometimes it's just unpleasant. And their whole, you know, their whole idea of like, what is this psychedelic stuff? It's a bunch of BS because I didn't have that great experience that I was expecting. And so I, I don't think it's a panacea. It's not a cure-all. It's a valuable, valuable tool. And if offered, delivered in the right set and setting with the right constellation of features and variables and preparation, and it's going to optimize the chances of it being a really good experience. But it's not, it's not a cure. And I think there's a lot of hype. I'm not trying to downplay the hype because I'm obviously very excited about it myself. But the the hype can turn into exuberance can turn into zealotry and 
when we run into a problem with the sort of proselytizing uh, too much. Yeah, it definitely, it always needs to be said, and it can never be reiterated enough that it is not a panacea, it is not a cure-all. But what, something that you said that kind of sparked my interest, and I'd, I'd love to dive into this more, is that people have an underwhelming experience. And what I'm finding more in, especially when you look at how ketamine works, people are misunderstanding the way it works. Like sometimes those underwhelming experiences are are not um, the reason why we go into it, you know, it's a, uh, there is a long-term effect. There is, um, you know, the way that ketamine will be an antidepressant long-term, not during the experience of ketamine, but later on. I think, um, especially with ketamine, the misinformation is that it's something that, you know, drops you down and, um, whatever, but people don't understand how, um, we can reorganize our brain and we can get such a beautiful serotonergic effect from psilocybin that's lasting. You know, so many people are like, oh yeah, you feel good for a while. Um, there is opportunity in that, um, shut off of the default mode network to do some work. And there's so many people, I just, I love to bring voice to the fact that there are so many people, and I know so many women and nurses that are so exhausted, um, from reading the next best book, from paying for the next life coach, from getting the right amount of exercise, the personal trainer, the vegan diet, doing everything that they possibly can, and they just can't get there. So sometimes um, the default mode network is is the answer to get out of that loop. It's an amazing tool. And uh, I believe everyone should have access to it to see if it can affect that kind of long-term change, really shift someone's inner narrative, their self-talk, their self-concept, their view of the world, their view of other people, really shake that up and, and actually pivot it in such a way that it, it resets a trajectory or, or sets them off on a new trajectory well after the experience itself. I think with ketamine, the effects are shorter lived and either people um, get the benefit of it after a little while, or they can keep working with the medicine as long as they're doing so in an intentional way, a ritualized kind of way with support um, that can go on indefinitely. But um, the, the positive benefits may, may wear off quicker. There was a study that just came out today. I think you saw that. They were showing 12 months sustained effects uh, from psilocybin, from two oh, yeah, I saw psil- that. psilocybin experiences. 12 months later, like something like 75% of people still showing significant remission and and depressive symptoms. Yeah, it's really incredible. Mm -hmm. The pathways of the serotonergic effect on the brain with psilocybin is really remarkable. And we don't have anything else that's doing that. It's so incredible. And to not to have to take a Lexapro or a Prozac or a Zoloft every day, you know, that's, that's significant. I'm the reason why I said that about prescriptive authority, I can't prescribe ketamine. I did get a master's degree in psychopharmacology uh, clinical psychopharmacology with the idea that with a doctoral degree in psychology and a master's degree in clinical psychopharmacology, I would be able to prescribe or deprescribe psychiatric medications. But what we're seeing is that, you know, with the classic pharmacotherapy, uh, with or without it being paired with psychotherapy, it's not, it's not what people think it is. I think the withdrawal from SSRIs has been massively underplayed. Absolutely. People who have been on Zoloft or Lexapro or, or uh, Celexa for 
10 years, 15 years, 20 years, trying to come off of it three, four times, always getting to like a month, two months into it, and they just can't take it anymore. So they go back on it again. I mean, it's a real, it's a real difficult scenario. And I think that for some people, these medications are life-saving. They're very important. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing the whole traditional psychopharm uh, pharmacotherapy method, but it's overutilized. It's it's prescribed willy-nilly, um, way too much without appropriate assessment by mostly people who are not mental health trained clinicians. And, and so I think with this new tool, ketamine, psilocybin, MDMA, having a, an emphasis on all these other environmental factors, psychological, emotional factors, not just going into a, right. a doctor's office and saying, I'm depressed. Can you give me something? Here's a, here's a prescription for Lexapro and you're off to the races. It's really like, oh, you're depressed. How long have you been depressed? Have you tried other medications? You know, there's psilocybin that's uh, been, you know, going to be FDA approved here in a little while. And when, you know, when that comes, when that comes online for legal use or in uh, Oregon, you know, that's a, I think personally, I think it's a better first, first line treatment than SSRIs. But that's yeah, my- what a great opinion. Absolutely. And also um, what's happening with the psychedelic movement is that we have this huge weight and understanding of the importance of integration because nothing's legal yet. The only thing that's legal is integration. So everyone's jumping in that pot. Like, absolutely. Let's learn about integration. How beautiful is that? It's giving us, instead of thinking of it as like a huge roadblock, it's giving us this opportunity to integrate and you know, as you said, um, people are rediscovering who they are and who they are with, with the world. How have you changed um, later in life after CIS? What is your personal perspective on who you are? Are you coming to a point where you see yourself as the symphony of selves that you shed skins and become new? Or what does it look like to be you? And what is your, your perspective on that? I, mean, I, I would just go back to what I said before about so this feeling of validation that um, Beautiful. Yeah. very, very strong sense of like my, you know, a lot of things are falling into place and I'm 49 years old, 50 years old, I'm mid career. Uh, and um, I just see there's a, just a tremendous amount of gratitude that I, like I said before, to be in this place where now parts of my personal story, my personal history and my professional history come together in this new way to offer a different kind of help to people and do my own work in expanding my understanding of myself as a person in recovery, as a helping professional, as a helping person. Um, It's just basically, I like the T.S. Eliot quote, it's from the quartets. uh, He's got a poem or an essay on the quartets and it says, we shall not cease from exploration, but at the end of all of our exploring is to wind up where we started and to know that place for the first time. And I believe that, you know, coming full circle, you know, this metaphor of a circle coming back around and around again and knowing this place for the first time, even though, you know, you've been here, but you're coming back as if it's new. And I just wish that for everybody. Let's, let's continue on this journey together rediscovering things that we already knew, but we're learning them in a new way because we're different now, you know, and it's this constant growth and expansion and, and it's not unfamiliar, but it's, it's, 
unfamiliar enough because we keep growing and changing and it's so it keeps things so exciting in that way yeah that's so beautiful thank you for saying that i really appreciate it yeah that's such a beautiful quote i love that quote um how can people gain access to the vermont society can you repeat yourself about how to find it so the best way to reach out well there's no yeah we we I know. Do you know Aaron Orsini? He wrote uh, Autism on Acid. Have you had him on your show yet? No, I should. Though that sounds amazing. Please give me yeah. his name and his email. <laughs> yeah, Aaron. Aaron is awesome. He wrote a book called Autism on Acid. He started the Autistic Psychedelic Society. Oh, cool. He's he's a really really good guy, and he's helping revamp the Psychedelic Society of Vermont website right now because of this conference. Oh, okay. Um, so so there is a website called vtpsychedelic.com. It's going to change to psychi- uh, Vermont psychedelic pretty soon here. And um, I think really, I don't like, we're not looking to, to sell anything or, or really promote anything at this point. We're just organically grassroots kind of getting together. So if anybody Googles around for Vermont psychedelic or psychedelic society, of Vermont, they can find that information. And, and I'll also, I'm not, my business, my practice is completely full. Um, people are reaching out for preparation and integration services, which I provide, and I'm trying to move my practice to do that. So I do have room in my practice for people specifically interested in psychedelic psychotherapy, even though I can't, I can't, you know, it's not legal to deliver only only ketamine, but um, I'm trying to move my practice in that way. And people, I'm very active on social media, on LinkedIn, and I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, So at Dr. Rick Barnett, on on Twitter is where people can find me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on today. Is there anything that we missed that you wanted to touch on? There's one thing that we missed. And that is that one thing that's a big part of my uh, experience in this journey uh, of the last couple of years is a 12 step recovery group called psychedelics in recovery. And so psychedelics in recovery is a group of people who are um, interested in recovery from all types of addictions, nicotine, codependency, food, sex, alcohol, drugs, gambling, you name it. They're open to the idea of a 12-step model, or they're coming from their own NA group. They're coming from their own GA or OA or Marijuana Anonymous or whatever. They're coming from their own group, and they want to come to a place where they can talk about the intentional use of psychedelics as part of a recovery process where it's difficult to talk about in traditional AA or NA groups because there's this um, idea most people have of, of AA and NA being total abstinence groups. It, it makes a lot of sense when you think about psychedelics and recovery, integrating psychedelics into a 12-step recovery when we're not just talking about recovery from alcohol and drugs because People who are in OA, they don't have, they might have a glass of wine. People who are uh, in Sex Addicts Anonymous mm-hmm. might smoke weed and smoking weed is not a problem for them. So mm-hmm. we are, we're under this broad umbrella of 12-step recovery that integrates the use of psychedelics in a way that, that um, helps deepen one's recovery process. And so that I, I, I recommend people who are, who are struggling with addictions or in long-term recovery from addiction through traditional 12-step models, but they're, they're wondering about psychedelics. How can psychedelics be integrated into recovery without 
losing your sobriety or whatever. Um, it's really cool. So psychedelicsandrecovery.org is is a fantastic, loving group of people that I think uh, I wish more people knew about. Oh, that's so amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really oh. like talking to you. Yeah, I really like talking to you too. I, I really um, um, feel really aligned with your position um, medically and psychedelics and how you're feeling about um, gathering community and being a voice. And it, it sounds really good. And I'm just just really happy to know you. Thank you all so much for listening. There's multiple things going on right now. And if you're really interested in following along and you want to do something that's totally free, I'm having a weekly Zoom integration circle. The best way to get involved in these really cool sessions where we capitalize on the things that we're learning ourselves in our own journey of our own human experience, please head on over to my Facebook group. It's called The Healed hero collective there i share links times and dates and i just want you guys to continue to rise in your own journey remember that your core your courage is your source for your own human potential and just breathe and keep going you are not alone have a great week